All right, so I want to remind you of a couple things. So look at the page one. We've talked about so far in John the fact that Christ is the tabernacle. He is the place where God dwells. At the same time, the whole of creation is a tabernacle. It's the place where God dwells. And so is the church of the living God. Now, we are the temple, which is a more mature form of that. But this idea of the there's a, a, a building of the tabernacle, and there's also an entering in. And so the idea of entering in to the church, entering into Christ, Christ entering into the world, those are all symbolized there. Then we had in chapters... 19, uh, chapter 1, verses 29 to 51, the idea of the sacrifice. There's the altar, the bronze altar for sacrifices. So Christ's sacrifice, that he is the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Then in John 2 and 3, we dealt with the idea of cleansing water. And there was in the tabernacle, you remember, and, and by the way, you've got the picture on page 2. So if you want to Look at those two pages. I guess for you it's probably the front and back, so just turn it really fast and you can see the words and the picture at the same time. Is that how it works? No? Okay. So we have the, uh, the, the water, the, the laver of water. It's a bronze laver for cleansing. So you enter in. There's a sacrifice for sins, and there's a, a cleansing. Okay, so this idea of cleansing. So then we go into the holy place. And in the holy place, there is a table for the showbread, or the, remember the older language is shoe bread, um, which does not mean bread made from shoes or for shoes, but instead is the idea of the bread of the presence of God. Okay, so the idea that God is present there. And you see that, think about how closely that relates to the idea of the Lord's table, right, and the, the bread of the Lord's supper. And at the same time, when you read about the things that are made for the table, it also talks about the idea of there being cups and there are pitchers. And so there's this idea of, of a wine that is poured into those cups. So there is a, a liquid for thirst and there is a, a physical nourishment for hunger. But those are symbolic of God's nourishing. And that's what we're in the portion of John that symbolizes those things. And later on, we'll continue through in terms of the, you know, Christ being the light, and then there will be the idea of the incense and the, the veil. So we'll be we're dealing with that. Uh, but right now, we're in this section where we deal with Christ as the showbread or the table of showbread, loaded with twelve cakes and chalices. So let's go to, go to page three of the outline. We have looked a lot at this discussion with. The Samaritan woman. Verses 1 through 10. We have this idea of the gift of God being faith in the Word of God. And we have the idea of a living water, the continual life that is given um, in terms of faith in the Word of God. So there's this continual supply. If you knew the gift of God, who it is, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That, that's the, the thing that Jesus got to. So then we look down, verses 11 and 12. Uh, we just talked uh, twice in John 3 about the source of the cleansing water and the Spirit. Uh, it is heaven and not earth that is the source. 
It's supernatural and not natural. This woman is confused about this. She thinks this is a discussion of natural water with some sort of special property. Um, and so this nourishing water that gives strength is from heaven. Now, we're going to see the same sort of confusion when Jesus talks to his disciples and they are training with him and they're going, you know, where did he eat? You know, what is this food that he had? And so that's why I have for you at the top here of the, of the sermon, the title is Food to Eat You Know Not Of. Right? So we're going to talk about the relationship of the drink and the food. And so the disciples are confused in the exact same way that this Samaritan woman is confused. Now, there are, there's a discussion of thirst on page 4. We looked at verses 13 and 14. There's a discussion of thirst, and there's two types of thirst. There's sort of the, the desire for creaturely things, like literal hunger for literal food, or literal thirst for literal water, literal drink. But there's also this idea that satisfaction in a lasting way is something that no earthly thing, no creature can give to you. And so you need to find the object of desire uh, that is the highest object of desire. So Christ is the object of man's desire. And by possessing him, by enjoying him, by doing the will of the Father, these are kind of progressive, right? We take possession by faith. We enjoy Him by realizing His, his value. And then we further enjoy Him by doing what He commands. And there's a satisfaction that comes there. There's a joy and a stability there. And so, this is the water that satisfies thirst in a lasting way, in a way that increases. So, the woman asks for this water, that she would not thirst, nor have to come here to draw. And so, the things I wanted you to take away from what we talked about before there is at point seven. Right? The Word of God does not resolve all needs of dominion, nor remove all desires for things that are lesser. The Word rightly orders desires and dominion objectives. The Word gives right desire, and the Word gives power to increase dominion in an orderly way. And that is to seek dominion things subordinately to seeking God and to seeking His glory. And so, what we will find as we continue forward is in 16, 17, and 18, the woman is told to call her husband. She says she has no husband. And Jesus points out her, her root unbelief, her, her replacement God, her false God is that she thinks she can find a man that will satisfy her desires for pleasure, for power, and for money. That, that this man could provide her with security and provision. And ultimately, it is God alone who we can rely upon for this. So she's had five husbands. She's currently with a man who's not her husband. And this woman is dissatisfied and looking for pleasure, security, and provision in the wrong places. So Christ is the showbread, the showbread. It's a, it's a showbread in that it's out on display. It's showbread in that it represents the presence of God, the face of God. This is the bread that pre- symbolizes the presence of God. And so God and His presence, His enjoyable presence, is the solution 
to our seeking for pleasure. And sexual desire is a pointer to that. What's sexual desire about? Well, it's about pleasure, but it's also about the desire for intimacy. And so there's a physical pleasure, and there's also a relational intimacy that is desired there. And God provides marriage in the holy covenant of the church, so there is a, a finding of spouses that are believers that we are pushed to, which a believing spouse will help you to grow in the knowledge of God. An unbelieving spouse is a difficult test. And if you sinfully enter after being a believer into a relationship with an unbeliever, you are setting yourself up and you're testing God. And this relationship with an unbelieving spouse can be used by God to deepen your dependence upon Him, but it will be through pain. So, the solution to the pursuit of pleasure is God's favorable presence and enjoying His provision with His blessing. Seeking to obtain things through lawful means. And so we have the enjoyment symbolized here with the food and drink and intimate relationship. The idea of sharing at the table, this enjoyment of relationship, the sharing at the table, enjoyment of relationship points to an intimacy of the enjoyment of the good gifts of God. So we should seek our pleasure in the favorable presence of God, living before the face of God, relying upon him to give us the things we need for pleasure. As regards security and power, the showbread reminds us that God is with us. It reminds us that God is with us. And whenever you see the promise of God being with you, it pretty much is God saying, I'll be with you and I'll beat up your enemies when they get there. That's the idea. He's going to be there to fight your battles. He will go before you. He will be with you. He will guard you. He will provide security. He will give you power to succeed. He will overcome your enemies. And so the presence of God should always remind us when God is with us, it's Him here to conquer our enemies. So the solution to power and security is God is with us. And He's given us a great commission to do. And He has promised to be with us to overcome the world. The solution to money and provision is God's blessing. And we are told to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all of the other provisions, clothing, money, everything, is what comes after. Now what this does not mean is to live like an ascetic and to live like a person who throws money to the wind and who destroys clothing and goes, God will provide. What you do is you do the work that God commands. You obey His law. And you understand the orderly arrangement of what your duties are. And so you seek to apply the law, and he provides in the doing of that. So page five. The woman says, you know, I see your prophet. After the rebuke about seeking her fulfillment in men all of which will result in continual dissatisfaction. Right? If you make your husband your God, you'll be disappointing God. If you make your wife your God, she'll be disappointing God. So she perceives that Jesus is a prophet and asks a question about where to worship and which worship was properly set up. And as a prophet, he gives the right answer. The Jews had it right, the Samaritans had it wrong. And then in verses 21 to 24... There's a discussion about the fact that basically there had been the man-selected mountain versus the divinely-selected mountain. 
the one in Jerusalem. There was a worshiping in superstition as opposed to worshiping with knowledge from divine revelation. So when you worship with superstition, what is that? That is worshiping what you do not know. Salvation comes from the Jews. Scripture came from the Jews, and the Messiah came from the Jews. And now Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when this is all going to change. The house is being torn down, so forgive that uh, typo there, but this is talking about the house of God. The hour is coming and now is when the house of God is going to be destroyed and replaced with the reality. It's a shadow. The house of God is a temple, as a physical temple, is a shadow. And the reality of the international church is taking its place. The Father is seeking those who have the Spirit of God, who have the Scriptures to worship Him. So verses 25 through 30, Jesus identifies Himself very plainly as the Christ, as the Messiah. And the woman says something very interesting. She says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean he will literally tell every propositional truth that ever could be told. That would be infinite. What is being said is that he will tell them all of the counsel of God. So all the counsel of God means not every thought God has ever had, not every plan God has ever had, not every true thought in his mind. Right again, that's infinite. What does it mean? It's everything that God intends to reveal. Okay, so she understands this. This was understood broadly in the Old Covenant, that the Messiah would come and capstone or finish the revelation. He will tell us all things. He will tell us the completeness of the counsel of God. Jesus doesn't rebuke that. Jesus doesn't sidestep it and say something else. Jesus says, I'm that guy. I'm the Christ. I'm the one who will tell you all things. So Jesus is identifying himself as Christ, and he agrees with the definition, which includes that the Christ will bring the fullness of the revelation that God gives to his people. Verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman, with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Okay. She then says, he told me all things that I ever did. Okay, is this, did he tell her every detail of everything she ever did? And on Tuesday, you ate a Salisbury steak. And then, that is not what he did. What did he tell her? He told her about the principal sin of her life and showed her, get this, that everything she had ever done was sin. The way that he told her all the things that she had ever done was by telling her that everything she had ever done was sin. He was revealing to her that she was in unbelief and she did not believe in the true God. He, He gives her two major doctrines. 
One, you are worshiping what you don't know because the outward forms you have and the revelatory claims you have are not the proper ones. And two, you are dominated by a sin of pursuing men as your source of satisfaction. Those are the two major things that he gave to her to walk away with. And that showed her that her goal was wrong and her means were wrong. And she understood that her whole life had been a seeking after sin. So that's the way in which this man told her all things that she had ever done. Now that's the doctrine of total depravity and the doctrine of constant transgression applied to a particular person. We are incapable of any good by ourselves, total depravity. Can't do any good. And we therefore continuously are transgressing the law of God. Now even after we are regenerated and therefore capable of doing good, we are still tainted by sin and therefore constantly have ongoing improper valuations and therefore in continual sin. But this woman was an unbeliever and became a believer. Though she believed in some promise of a Messiah, she believed in a Samaritan version. She believed in a wrong version. And so she becomes persuaded of the true version. She accepts that the Old Covenant faith revealed in the Old Covenant Scriptures are accurate. She accepts the Jewish defense. And then that he is the particular Messiah and then calls everyone to him. So look at point 17. Christ will tell us all things. He will complete the form of Scripture throughout the ministry of Christ. Now, this is a theme of John, that Jesus will cause the apostles to recall his teaching and to put it into Scripture so the fullness of the mind of Christ is captured, not lost. We're going to see that, especially as we get to the second half of John. And that gets repeated over and over again. It's going to become a really big emphasis in the second half of John as Jesus is preparing to leave. And he's trying to get his disciples to understand that. This is also taught in other places of Scripture. Daniel 9, you frequently hear me say, look, here's this prophecy of the coming of Christ and the, how prophet and vision will cease. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about how when the complete comes, the partial will pass away. Hebrews 1 talks about how Christ came as the one who is superior to the prophets. <coughs> Revelation says to not add to the big book. That's the Greek. We've talked about that before, but we can talk about it more later if anybody has any questions. So go to page 6. Point 17. Remember, the Christ also brings change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. There's the covenant of works, which is do this and live, but there's also the covenant of grace, which is the just by faith shall live. And that's organized into two pieces, the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is from Adam until Christ. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Those are the big checkmark points. Those are the big moments, the checkpoints. And Christ comes, and he brings in the new covenant, and then the old covenant completely passes away in 70 AD. There's a decline from international to national. That's the story there. Then, from the New Covenant, Christ's resurrection, and all the way to 70 AD, we have sort of this coming in. And then it's in a position where it's sent out powerfully, more powerfully, to the nations. So this is a rise from national to international. And he fills the earth. So I want you 
to think more deeply about Christ and the covenant that he is the mediator of. So we're going to take a second and we're going to look at chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. Who is this Christ? And what is this covenant? Well, Christ is the mediator of the covenant. So we need to understand that well. So one, look at section one of the Westminster Confession, chapter seven. This is talking about the covenant of works. The covenant of works is a covenant where God promises the possibility of life as a reward. Now, there is no reason why any creature should ever be owed a reward by God. Think about this for a second. God is owed our perfect obedience regardless of any promise on his part. God makes angels, makes men. What do they owe him? They owe him perfect obedience. If they disobey, God owes them punishment because he's just. However, there is nothing that could make it so that he is ever indebted to them. And so some people like to say, God graciously enters a covenant of works whereby you could earn a reward. But that confuses the word grace. And the word grace is a word that means demerited, unmerited, favor. If you merit it, it's now not unmerited. If you merit it, it's not demerited. It's merited. They're mutually exclusive categories. So, if there is a covenant of works, it is inherently not of grace. So, what the Westminster Confession has is it does not say that God has entered into a covenant of works out of grace. Look at this language, okay? The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him. In other words, they could never receive any fruit from him as owed. As their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So the idea is God condescends. Now, we as Americans hate the word condescension because we think no one would ever condescend to me because nobody's higher than me. And so if they come down, which is what descending means, therefore it means they think they're higher, and so we are offended. Condescension from a person who's actually higher than you is a good thing. It is them coming down to do something for you. Fathers, when you play with your children, you are condescending. You are going into their childish things to enter into their world to seek to bless them. So this condescension... With dissension is God coming down and saying, I am going to promise you something with a condition. So this condescension is coming down. is not grace in the covenant of works, but it is a coming down and offering something that he wouldn't owe. So we need to avoid the language of grace in talking about the covenant of works, and we need to use the language of condescension. Because it will help to avoid mixing merit and grace. It will help to avoid mixing the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So this is expressed in a way of covenant. So this, what's a covenant? A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Bond, it's established by an oath. 
It's life or death consequences. It's in blood. It's administered by God sovereignly. He defines how it works, the administration, and he defines it. He's the authority. Section 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Okay, there's the condition of the covenant. Notice that the life, the promise, the life that's promised to Adam is in him to his posterity. In him. Does that language remind you of anything? You will see over and over again in gospel texts, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That language of in Christ is in the same way that someone could be in Adam. It's a legal union. It's a legal union. What does that mean? That means his actions are counted to us in law. He is power of attorney. He is a covenant representative. He is a federal head. So in Adam. Now in Adam, what do we have? In Adam, we have guilt. And we have corruption that's received in our natures. Section 3. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Okay, so there's a a work of Christ, and Christ's work, we're united to, we're connected to Him if we have faith, and He gives us faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, so we are willing and able to believe. And so we see there, there's certain relationship to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There's a, a way in which there's a representative in both. There's a condition where Christ meets all of the things that Adam failed to meet. And he is connected to us with faith. Faith is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we get all of the benefits that are promised to Christ by being connected to him through faith. Section 4. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the Scripture by the name of a testament. Right? So when you see testament in the Scripture, you need to understand that is just an English translation of the Hebrew word diatheke, which means covenant, or of the Hebrew word berit. Okay, and they just mean covenant. So, testament in Scripture, when we say Old Testament, New Testament, that just means Old Covenant, New Covenant. Covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator. So, this is an explanation of why that word was used and why, for example, in the King James Bible, which was the dominant Bible of this time, 1611, and this is the 1640s, right? So that's the dominant one. Before that, you have the Geneva Bible, which you will also see similar language with. In reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and the everlasting inheritance, with all things belonging to it, therein bequeathed. Now, 
when we think about the Old and New Testament, we should not believe that those are a last will and testament, which is where this language comes from. They are covenant. Christ, as the testator, the word that's used in, for example, the book of Hebrews that talks about him being the testator, which is the person who gives the last will and testament, it just has the word for covenant. So it would be like the covenanter. It would be like the covenant administrator. And so Christ is the one who is the mediator of the covenant. And we receive an everlasting inheritance in that covenant. Go to page 7, section 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law. That means the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Okay, So this covenant was administered differently in the Old Testament and in the time of the Gospel, the New Testament. Under the law, the Old Testament, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and all other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. So the showbread, the chalices, the table that they're on, all of these are types and shadows that for signify Christ. And what's happening in the book of John is John is taking this pattern of the tabernacle and he is giving to us this unveiling way where he's showing us the typology of Christ. That he is God, that he is man, and that he is a fulfillment of all these typologies. And he's walking us through the tabernacle, helping us to see these typologies. Now, look at where footnote B is. It says, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious. Okay, so the types in the Old Testament were sufficient at that time, and they were efficacious at that time. Through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah. So here's what happens. A lot of people look back at the Old Testament and they go, what did people believe in in the Old Testament? Well, they believed in Christ. They believed in the promise of the Messiah. They are all, people were always saved by believing in the Messiah. The people of God before Christ came by looking forward to Christ and afterward by looking back to Christ. These types pointed forward and they were sufficient and they were efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith and the promised Messiah at that time. They are not any longer. Okay, so going back to those is going back to the beggarly elements. By whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And it's called the Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law, the time of the law, the Old Testament. Section 6. Under the Gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, okay, the substance as opposed to the foreshadowing. Okay, the substance as opposed to the foreshadowing. As opposed to the type. It's the substance. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, showed forth, you could say maybe put on a table to be shown. The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Okay, So there's a simple list. And we have... Earlier on, 
the promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and all other types and ordinances. You read through the Levitical ordinances, there are a lot of them. Which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, more simplicity, but emphasizing the simplicity of the New Covenant to you, because I want you to see the beauty of the simplicity. The simplicity is not a bug, it's a design feature. Right? The simplicity is a design feature. And has less outward glory. Yet, in them, it is held forth in more fullness. So, this simplicity allows for a holding forth the gospel in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Covenant. And there are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Okay, so we have the changes of the outward administration. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant has multiple layers inside of it. The New Covenant is just this continuous thing where we have the whole of it. So that gives to us, this is what the Christ brings in. He brings in the fullness of the revelation and he gives us the simplicity of the New Covenant. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, he does not say my food is to do a bunch of random things. He does not say, my food is to do stuff that is made up by whomever. What he says is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The things that will give you satisfaction, that will give you strength, are the things that have been commanded from heaven. First we deal with thirst, and then we deal with hunger. The showbread and the chalices are signified here in how they nourish as we're walking through the tabernacle. We have the solutions that I've already explained for pleasure, power, and provision. They are to do the commandments of God. The food provides the pleasure of the enjoyment, the consumption, and the idea of power to make it so that we have strength to keep going. And there's this continual provision that's symbolized also with the water, with this idea of the nourishment of the body to slake thirst is doing the commandments of God. It will give you strength to run and not grow weary. It will make you so that your way is a highway rather than a hedge of thorns. So I'm asking you this. Doing the will of the Father, doing the will of heaven, doing what has been commanded will give you energy and give you strength. And so I ask you to examine yourself, to look for any cherished sins that you're not giving up, any place where you're not applying the Word of God to the hurt of your soul, any place where you're avoiding to press in, to seek the pleasure of God, power from God, provision from God, instead of seeking the arm of the flesh to give you those things. We just read Genesis 16. Okay? Here's an example of how Abraham... Used the arm of the flesh to try to solve God's problems. He took Hagar to himself. Sarah advised him to do it. 
And in doing that, he sought to use a means that God had not commanded to accomplish the promise of God. What promise that God gives, what blessing that God gives, are you currently using means that God has not given you to try to solve that problem? I ask you to search in yourself, and I would, here is my counsel to you. Here is the counsel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find yourself weary in seeking that thing, look for the will of God in that, and you will find food to make you strong to get it. What does God say to do in that area? So verse 35. Jesus carries on, and from talking about this idea of the food that he has, that the apostles do not know of, he goes into this analogy, and we immediately are inclined to forget what he said in the verse above, and we are inclined to read this and just say he's talking about evangelism. Okay, So look at this verse. Do you not say there are still four hours and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So this idea that there's a, there's a field that's white for harvest, there's all these people that need to be evangelized to so that they can come to repentance. Okay, that's, that's certainly an application of what's being said. There's certainly a, a discussion about that. But what is the point of this? What was Jesus even talking about before this? He was saying, I have food that you don't know about. That food is doing the will of God. And then he explains how to harvest food. He's not changing analogies. He is continuing talking about how to get food that will satisfy your hunger, that will give you strength. So, look at the previous verse. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his and to finish his work. Doing the will of him who sent me, that's doing the law. And finishing the work is accomplishing the mission. What's the mission? To fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So now he's saying, look, we look at the fields and we can say, you know, it's four more months and then it's harvest time. So, if you see a field that has been cut down, cleared, rocks have been removed, it's been plowed, it's been planted, and it's four months away from harvest, would you say, let's not harvest that, let's create a new field, and let's start over? Or would you say, hey, somebody else has done work here, let's benefit from the work that has already been done, and let's efficiently collect that harvest. So Jesus is saying, the way you get food, the way you get food to eat and get satisfaction is finding the work that God has prepared 
and efficiently going to complete it. So, if you try to do something that God hasn't commanded, you are not going to eat the food. And if you try to constantly start over and ignore the work that has been done before, you are going to have a much harder time. And in fact, you're going to miss out on harvest. So Jesus is saying, there, we evaluate the situation. And you see that there are four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. So you then, you look up, and you say, there is this fact that here, right here, in Samaria, there's a field that's already ready for harvest. If there's another place where you're saying it's going to be a while till there's harvest, compare that to there's a harvest ready. That's a, an even easier thing than going and waiting four months for some field that's already been prepared. Okay, so there's, here's a forest I need to cut down and make a field. Here's a field where I'm four months away from harvest. And here's another field where it's ready for harvest. Which one is going to provide you the most immediate sustenance? Which one is going to give you the most immediate reward? So we are called to look at the law of God, and we are called to look at where we are to put our efforts based upon the ease of fulfillment, the ease of completion. These are dominion principles. Law of God plus how far along is it? How easy is it to complete so that a decisive point has been taken? For they are already white for harvest. Verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So this completes the work of the people who prepared. Who are the people that prepared here? Who prepared Samaria? You can read all sorts of prophets that spoke in the north, and they did not gather a big harvest. There were tons of people who should have repented in the northern tribes, in Samaria, in the north of Israel. And you have all these prophets that went there, and the harvest they reap over and over again is small. But this work was prepared. And so now Jesus and his disciples are able to come in, and they can just get a quick, easy harvest there with this field that's white for the harvest. And the result is that those who prepared rejoice that somebody finished it. And both get wages. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So what we want to do is we want to look at what have others done before. Look at the Westminster Assembly. We look at Nicaea. We look at this stuff. We, we say, what has been done before? We look at the work that's been done around us in our local condition. You know, where have people been prepared to be able to be brought into a more full view of the Reformed faith? Where, has, where are the people who are willing to talk about the things of God? Where are we able, like the white woman wisdom, to stand by the road on a hill and have many passers-by hear the word and become potentially interested in finding out more? We normally ignore this context and we move to just emphasize the evangelism portion of this teaching. But let us appreciate the connection to food. There's a food analogy. There's food to be collected at an appointed time. The point is not just that there's people who will be saved, but there's rewards for you and there's a way in which it nourishes and refreshes you if you do work that is wisely chosen. 
that one is what God commands and two encourages you to fruitfulness. It helps to bring in reward. And so thinking about this, this is what the Lord Jesus is teaching here. He who collects the food does good works by reaping the good works that are ready for him will receive wages for doing those good works that were prepared for him to do. The one who prepares does a good thing and the one who completes does a good thing. They will rejoice together as co-laborers enjoying the fruit together. Here's another thing this encourages you to think about. When you do work and it does not result in a harvest, you know what that means? That means God is going to send somebody else to reap the harvest. And that means you will receive wages. That means you will receive something to rejoice about. God does not fail to complete the things he begins. If he has you do a good work, that good work will bear fruit in time and history, and it will result in some sort of pulling of that harvest, and it will result in good and reward for you. So this helps you to think in two ways. One, how can I find the stuff that will help me to harvest more quickly? And two, when you choose something that does not result in a harvest more quickly, and you see no harvest, do not believe that it was in vain. Someone else will be sent to reap the harvest. And you will share in that harvest. And you will rejoice in that harvest. And that is you doing work that prepares food for others. Now, we should examine what has been prepared for us. How can we join in the labors of our forefathers and rejoice with them? How can we join in the labors of others and rejoice with them? Proverbs 19.24 and 26.15 both say very similar things. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. When things are close to done, the wise thing to do is to finish it. If the food has already been made and it's prepared and it's in the bowl and all you've got to do is lift your hand to your mouth, then be wise, be not lazy, finish it. Complete the thing. I want to see you all brought to maturity. I want you in the fields working with me. I want to use the fields that have been prepared for us and not just prepare new ground. And so, as we continue thinking through, for example, the discipleship plan that we're discussing, I want you to understand that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. I see all of you as at various stages of maturity and my desire is to see you brought to maturity, to fruit-bearing, to see that harvest, and to see you help to see more harvest brought in. There's an order of operation. And I want to encourage you that the means that we're trying to employ are what God has appointed. And to carefully avoid means that God has not appointed, it would be easy to gather a crowd today. The world, what is today? Christmas Eve. It would be easy to gather a crowd today. It would be easy. What? How many postcards sent out would collect how many people from around the neighborhood just by saying Christmas Eve service? But that would be like sleeping with Hagar. And the production would be a wild man like Ishmael. 
What we want are gardens that are well tended, that are cared for with the means that God has appointed. And what we want to do is to see that things that are gathered are not simply ignored because of the shiny new thing. What we want is to see a careful completing of what has been harvested and the enjoyment of consuming that which God has prepared. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. This is a little picture of the woman preparing the way. Right? She is preparing a harvest for him. She brings these people out. And Jesus finishes the work he harvests. He applies this to evangelism and disciples these people. He doesn't just evangelize. He stays there for two days and teaches them. He gives them the information they need to basically have a little church. This is the setting things in order and then leaving. And he said to the woman, now we believe. They said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Christ is the promised prophet, priest, king, who fulfills the covenant of grace. He is the foresignified. He is what we look back on now. And he is the savior of an international people of God and not just one nation. He is the savior of the world. So we will be moving on next time to the next section of John 4. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.